Swagmen and Swagats, this episode is sponsored by GiveWell. Imagine if every year you saved a person's life. One year you rescued someone from a burning building, the next year you saved someone from drowning, the year after that you're out for dinner with your partner, you notice someone having a heart attack, and you perform CPR and save their life. Think about the warm glow you'd feel living this extraordinary life. The truth is we have an opportunity to do this every single year of our lives just by targeting our donations to the most effective charities in the world. How is this possible? Three premises. Number one, if you're listening to this podcast, chances are you make more than 28,000 Australian dollars a year and are therefore in the richest 10% of the world. Number two, we can do 100 times more good for others than for ourselves by focusing on the parts of the world most in need, because a doubling of income will always increase subjective well-being by the same amount. And number three, some charities are vastly more effective than others. But how do you find the most effective charities? Well, for over 10 years, GiveWell.org has helped donors find the charities and projects that save and improve lives most per dollar. The most effective charities GiveWell has found can save a life for three to five thousand US dollars. GiveWell was founded in 2007 by two former Bridgewater analysts who were looking to donate their own money to highly effective charities. It now has over 15 staff researchers with backgrounds in economics, biology and philosophy who clock up over 20,000 hours of research per year looking for the giving opportunities that will maximise donors' impact. Charities GiveWell recommends include the Malaria Consortium, the Against Malaria Foundation, and Evidence Action's Deworm the World initiative. I personally give to the Against Malaria Foundation, which distributes bed nets to prevent malaria at a cost of about $5 to provide one net. You can let GiveWell direct your donation, or you can choose one of their recommended charities yourself. GiveWell takes no fees, over 62,000 donors have given based on their recommendations, and they've directed over $500 million to the charities they recommend. To donate, go to givewell.org swagman and pick podcast and the Jolly Swagman at checkout. You will get your first donation matched up to $250. This matching offer is good for as long as funds last. So go to givewell.org swagman and select podcast and the Jolly Swagman at checkout. You're listening to the Jolly Swagman podcast. Here's your host, Joe Walker. Swagmen and Swagettes, welcome to the final episode for 2020. In the closing days of 2020, an optimist has to see light at the end of the tunnel. As late as April of this year, many experts were saying that we wouldn't have a coronavirus vaccine for at least four years. And yet, right now, across the world, mRNA vaccines are being distributed. The speed with which they were developed is a triumph of our species. 2020 was a year for other technological breakthroughs, from artificial intelligence to biotech to spaceflight. There are murmurings that the great stagnation might be coming to an end. I'm also optimistic about how prosperity will be shared. In the last couple of years, barrels of ink were spilled over why capitalism is broken and how to fix it. I have a sense that people are increasingly focusing on the question of inequality, more now than ever, as well as the problems of monopoly and rent-seeking, and I have hope that in America we might soon see another FDR rather than another Trump, although I'm not entirely convinced that it will be in the form of Joe Biden. 
Ed Wilson once wrote that the real problem of humanity is that we have Paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. But I think that's altogether too pessimistic. Our institutions have been updated and improved since the Enlightenment, and they've held together well. As much as we like to complain about our politicians down under, and indeed in any country in the West, Australia is a model of governance. The way we responded to the pandemic wasn't perfect, but it was pretty bloody good. And it was largely thanks to our institutions, if not to the trust that they've engendered. On this year's Human Freedom Index, we're the fifth freest country in the world, and we have high levels of trust. So I'm optimistic about 2021 and beyond, despite the rolling clusterfuck that was 2020. To say a few more mundane words about the podcast, 2020 was kind to the JSP. Thank you all so much for supporting the show, by listening, by sharing it, and by engaging with it. Using Spotify followers as a rough proxy, we grew our subscribers by about 300%. I wasn't sure what would happen there because a lot of our listeners, a not insignificant amount of our listeners, listen while commuting, which was obviously reduced by the working from home arrangements in place around so much of the world. But I suppose you all found new outlets for the show via more cooking or more exercising or whatever you like to do while you're listening. Our most popular episode of the year was the one with Yinir Bayam, which went, as it were, viral. We also got a new logo this year to create a veneer of professionalism. 2020 was the year for repeat guests. Former RBA Governor Ian McFarlane came on the show twice, as did Eric Weinstein, Vernon Smith, and now that this episode has been released, David Sloan Wilson. Guests from previous years also returned to the show, including Yanis Varoufakis, Kevin Rudd, and Peter Singer. Only four of this year's episodes were recorded face-to-face, the rest were on Skype or Zoom. Skype and Zoom aren't perfect, but over the course of the year, I learned how to optimize them, and I now have a few tricks up my sleeve for audio quality over the internet. As a rule, I prefer face-to-face, and I'm looking forward to returning to that, as well as some live events next year. It is difficult trying to keep a full-time job and do this podcast, which is why my release schedule has been so haphazard. In 2021, I'm going to push myself to aim for consistent weekly releases on Monday mornings, and we'll see how that goes. I am excited for 2021. And I hope to keep serving you by digging up a mix of interesting and important yet underreported guests and topics so you can learn more about the world and what matters. To say a word about this episode, our guest is David Sloan Wilson, one of the most important evolutionary biologists perhaps of all time. If you want to learn more about Dave's life, his career and his ideas, I highly recommend the first conversation I recorded with him which was released earlier this year. In this episode, we discuss his new novel, Atlas Hugged, which is an update of Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. We talk about Rand's influence, about selfishness and altruism, and about what makes societies successful, all from an evolutionary framework, which I find very interesting. I'm grateful to be able to release this episode on the eve of 2021. I hope it reminds you of the better angels of our nature, and how we can achieve so much more when we think less about me and more about we. So without much further ado, please enjoy this chat with the great David Sloan Wilson. 
David Sloan Wilson, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, Jolly Swagman. It's great to see you again after our blockbuster episode, which was <laughs> very popular despite being so academic. I think we covered a lot of ground. And today, at the end of 2020, we're going to talk about several things. We're going to touch on multi-level selection again, but we're also going to talk about your new book, Atlas Hugs, which, as people might be able to tell from the title, is your own update of Ayn Rand's famous 1957 novel Atlas Shrugged Um, and Dave before we start talking about your book specifically maybe we can begin with Ayn Rand and Atlas Shrugged so tell me what you learned about Rand herself through this process of researching and writing your book well I, I sense that Ayn Rand is a little bit lesser known overseas than in America but in America and probably also in England. She is iconic as the person who provided a moral foundation for the greed is good neoliberal ideology um, that um, America stands for. And there are um, important people such as Alan Greenspan, the head of the Federal Reserve, who was her disciple, frankly, her disciple. And one thing that he said about her was uh, before Ayn Rand, I thought the free market was good, but afterwards I thought of it as right. And we have story after story about American politicians, most recently Paul Ryan, who would assign Atlas Shrugged to his his staff as a kind of a um, indoctrination. And uh, Ayn Rand herself said that that, um, art is the indispensable medium for the communication of a moral ideal. So what she did was build a kind of a secular religion around uh, the individual, the sanctifying the individual, the individual as their own God. Uh, this was written in the 1950s. And uh, so it's credited with a lot of influence. So you could even say that she's had as great or greater an influence as uh, famous uh, economists such as Milton Friedman or Friedrich, Friedrich um, Hayek. At the same time, I'm always careful to point out that if Ayn Rand never existed, probably that tradition of individualism would be just the same, just as strong. So she was a vehicle for it, but was by no means, I don't think, an essential element of it. Uh, That's a tradition that has to have its own social science uh, or social history explanation. And then the final thing I'll say is that it illustrates the power of fiction. Uh, why? What is it about a story, even a very lengthy and <laughs> as you as you've discovered by trying to read her novel, um, um, a story such as that? What is it that's different and in some ways more powerful, more compelling than the real world? A fictional world is more compelling than a real world, and so all of these things provided a a great starting point for for uh, my own uh, first foray into into fiction, although my dad, as you know, is a famous novelist, so I kind of come by it easily. But, uh, so, but this is my first novel. What were Rand's intellectual influences? Well, this is an important, important question to ask, so thank you for that, because she really must be understood in the context of her times. She was born in Russia, experienced the worst of Russian 
communism and socialism. I believe her family had all of his property confiscated. And so this gave her a zeal for free enterprise that we can understand. You got to get back to the 1950s. That was the Cold War. That was when the communist menace was was uh, um, spreading worldwide, all of that sort of stuff. And so um, um, you can understand her uh, as a product of her times. And yet also, when you uh, just proceed with, with history and you look at her against the background of the current times, then you see that although socialism uh, failed in communist Russia, in fact, socialism has failed wherever it's been tried by name. This is a very important point to make. And in my, in my, in my, um, in my scientific work and my nonfiction writing, I have essays with people like Jeff Hodgson that really documents that uh, the two problems with socialism when it's been tried in this kind of full-throated way is number one, centralized planning. That's a disaster. Always was, always will be. And number two, the concentration of power into the hands of two elites. If you have concentration of power and centralized planning, that'll never, ever work. So that needs to be said. Um, At the same time, if you look at unfettered capitalism, which is what Ayn Rand stood for, that also doesn't work. Just a different set of evils. And so um, that's and that's where we are today. We don't have the threat of socialism today, really. When people talk about socialism in the first place, they don't know what they mean. Um, or in the second place, they might be talking about something which is much more benign and effective, such as uh, social democracy of the Nordic countries and so on and so forth. So finding the right style of governance is um, is um, is very important and is important in the novel in addition to the real world. But uh, uh, Ayn Rand definitely, definitely needs to be understood against the backgrounds of the, of the world and America in the 1950, the middle of the, middle of the 20th century. Just unpack why central planning doesn't actually work on the one hand and why laissez-faire doesn't work either. Well, I have a whole series of essays, uh, not essays, uh, conversations, print and podcast conversations on my website, This View of Life, titled Evolution, Complexity, and the Third Way of Entrepreneurship. And so there, in a very extensive way, I really hope some of your listeners cross over and just type in uh, that title, Evolution, Complexity, and the Third Way of Entrepreneurship, and you'll get a very comprehensive answer to that question. But the short version is, is that laissez-faire doesn't work because it's just not true that everyone pursuing their own interest benefits the common good. That's the first thing you need to know about multi-level selection. Selfishness is typically disruptive. Uh, The invisible hand metaphor is profoundly untrue, except in a very different form that we can, that we can talk about. Uh, next thing is is that uh, socialism doesn't work, centralized planning doesn't work, just because the world is too complex. The world is too complex to be comprehended by any group of experts, period. And that's not only true at the national scale, it's true at any scale. It's true for your own life. It's true for 
a small business. Uh, we just don't know enough, even those of us that are trained as scientists and stuff like that, to actually avoid unforeseen consequences. And so therefore, what is required, and that's the third way, is a managed process of cultural evolution. We must have a target of selection. It must be systemic. We must orient variation around the target. And we must replicate best practices, realizing that they're sensitive to context. And so that's the thesis. And I explore that thesis with about a dozen authorities on any kind of social change that you can imagine. National governance, development efforts, entrepreneurship, as we typically think of it, urban planning, the smart cities movement, you name it. If you're trying to accomplish positive change, you cannot use laissez-faire, you cannot use centralized planning. You must employ a managed process of cultural evolution. And because that's the only thing that can work, it's the only thing that ever has. So if you review examples of positive cultural change in the past or present, then what you find is, is that a convergence on the third way, a pragmatic experimental approach to positive change. And I really had a great time fleshing out that thesis with these great authorities and making that available, both in the form of long print conversations and then more accessible podcasts. I feel like apart from the obviously egregious historical examples of central planning and, and laissez-faire, that today they don't really happen in practice in Western societies and there's sort of a, con a long continuum in between them um, and, and we, we, kind of move, we kind of walk along that continuum between changes of government and political parties. But where would you precisely locate your third way on that continuum? Well, the best current examples are the famous Nordic countries, and it's sometimes called the Nordic model of governance, which is very much a blend. Um, and it could be understood in evolutionary terms as similar to the social dynamics of a small group. In a small group, when it works well, when they work well, and they often they don't, but when they do, it's because first and foremost, there's an equal balance of power. Everyone has a say and insists on having a say. So that creates a kind of an egalitarianism that in the first place makes use of everyone's contributions, but also prevents uh, being taken advantage of because the great danger of social life at all scales is to be taken advantage of. Whenever there's a big power imbalance, then you know what's going to happen. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so, and so social control and a balance of power, um, and then members of the group working in a collaborative spirit. So now that now that we're now that you can't push me around, I guess the only thing left is for us to do something together. And um, and um, what the Nordic countries have done is they've scaled that up so that that's what operates on a national scale. Labor is strong, <laughs> capital is strong. These are capitalist societies. Government is strong. And they all work collaboratively for the good of Norway or for the good of Denmark or Sweden um, or Finland. And so uh, really what they've done is they've scaled it up. And if you look at them historically, you find actually that's quite accurate. When you look at them as, you know, a century or 
several centuries ago, you find in part because they were in the north, you know, climatically, they were challenging, basically required cooperation at a at a small scale. So it's kind of baked into the culture um, um, more so than um, than some entrepreneurial uh, 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 cultures. But there's your happy medium that you were talking about. We've got a good model, perfectly good model. And, um, and um, often when people talk about the Nordic model, especially in America, it gets dismissed as, oh, we couldn't possibly be by Nor- like Norway. They're, they're this or they're that. They're culturally homogenous and all that. But no, actually, uh, they're a fine model. And uh, we could say more about actually America during its own history has fluctuated between being more and less egalitarian and and democratic and um, and was even influenced by the Nordic model during its own history. Uh, uh, FDR was influenced uh, by a book called the, the Swedish Way and on and on. So, uh, but uh, yeah, you're right that um, pure forms of socialism and and uh, laissez-faire capitalism don't exist. Uh, but another point to make, um, Joe, is that um, it's not just a matter of splitting it down the middle. The third way, a managed process of cultural evolution, is not some kind of compromise. It's actually uh, you know, quite a complicated process. Those three ingredients, forming a target of selection, orienting variation around the target, replicating best practices, that's a whole complex process that needs to be orchestrated. And it's not just something in between socialism and, and capitalism. It's really different. And so that's a, um, an important point to make. So I'll link to the conversations that you mentioned. And I also recommend Dave's previous book, This View of Life, for an elucidation of, of the third way and also the problems with central planning and laissez-faire. Dave, was Ayn Rand a happy person? <laughs> I don't know. Um, she was the center of a cult. That made her happy, maybe. Um, she had a... I mean, to say a little bit more about her and her movement, and also the philosophy that she formed, which she called objectivism. She regarded herself as a kind of a highbrow intellectual, a philosopher, and uh, her philosophy was called objectivism. And it basically was, I mean, a version of humanism. Um, really uh, romanticized the individual thinker and, um, and the ability to make decisions on the basis of rational thought. And so, um, and so um, the idea that you could just kind of check your premises and, and decide the best thing to do um, and then once you knew what that was, then you could just push that to the limit, even against opposition, knowing that it would work out well for um, everyone, was uh, her philosophy of objectivism in a nut- nutshell. Uh, the sanctity of the individual, as a, um, is how I put it in Atlas, uh, Atlas uh, Hugged. And so... And so she became a celebrity, and um, and both as a novelist and as a philosopher, a movement formed around her. But that movement became a really a, a a cult surrounding her, and a kind of a parody of what really 
people checking their premises might ever be. Um, and that story is told by two people. One is by um, Nathaniel Brandon, who was a young man who um, entered her movement and became her disciple and also her lover. So she had a an affair. She was married, but she had an affair with a much younger man, member of a movement. He was also married, and so there was a kind of a kind of a scandalous um, sexual um, uh, story there. And then, and then later on, he wrote a sort of an expose of the movement called uh, Judgment Day. But then the um, um, Michael Shermer uh, uh, of skeptic fame, in one of his books, Why People Believe in Weird Things, has a whole chapter on Ayn Rand in which he himself uh, gives a biography of her and shows just how much this became a, a cult that revolved around her, a very quixotic, basically whatever she said went. People were either in her favor or or, um, or not. And so it became really a grotesque parody of what it seemed to, uh, what it seemed to stand for. Uh, the movement appealed to two very different kinds of people. One were powerful people who like to be told that their intentions for themselves are morally pure. And the second was a young and idealistic people who were at the dawn of their adult lives and then uh, that heroic portrayal of the individual operating against convention was very appealing. And Nathaniel Brandon, as a Midwest teenager who was just kind of chafing against his provincial little social environment, was uh, captivated by, by um, uh, Ayn Rand. And for a period, it seemed to just be so enthralling to be part of this, part of this great movement. So it's a long book, Atlas Shrugged, and the writing isn't particularly brilliant, <laughs> yet it's sold over 7 million, well, in my opinion at least, some people might disagree with me, but it's sold over 7 million copies since it was first published. So what is it in the writing that is so mimetic? Well, there, so let's make a few points. Uh, the book was widely criticized by anyone with, you know, any kind of literary critic, judged objectively, uh, you might say that she is a good writer in, in places, but uh, horribly turgid, lengthy, <laughs> wooden characterizations, outlandish plot. Um, so uh, not, a, not a good piece of literature by those standards. Uh, you can place it alongside another book, which I do in the, in the prologue, of um, Walden Two by B.F. Skinner. So this is another novel of the future based on science and that had a huge influence and was very poorly written as a story. The storytelling was <laughs> left a lot to be desired. While we're at it, let's uh, add some other sacred texts, such as the Book of Mormon, which Mark Twain called chloroform in print. So uh, uh, there's something about sacred books and novels that are conveying a moral worldview that become influential despite their flaws on the storytelling end of things. And I think this tells us a lot about the whole nature of fiction, stories, storytelling um, from an evolutionary uh, uh, perspective, that what stories do is that they do 
contain a moral worldview so that if, if you're if you become captured by the worldview, then you will forgive flaws in the story because the the the, the story is representing what is should be right and what should be wrong for you. And that's what you incorporate, internalize, and love, basically, even if the story itself was quite clunky. And I had the real privilege, you have to know, Joe, that um, even though I'm, you know, experienced writer of nonfiction and all of that, just like any first-time novelist, I was like... Um, very uncertain as to whether it was a good book, who would like it, and stuff like that. And one of the first people to read it was my colleague Brian Boyd, who's over there in New Zealand. And he's a very celebrated literary um, um, scholar. He's actually the world authority on Vladimir Nabokov. And uh, he just won the Rutherford Prize, which is New Zealand's highest honor for a... um, uh, uh, for an academic, and he's one of the few literary scholars who actually thinks about literature from an evolutionary perspective. He has a book called um, The Origin of Stories. And so why is it that we're a storytelling um, uh, animal in just about everything that we that we do? And he found the time to read Atlas Hogged and, and loved it. We have a podcast on it that's coming out on my podcast, This this View of Life, Life which was... Uh, uh, tremendously uh, gratifying, but it enabled us to explore these these themes of what is it about a story that is so much more compelling? Why is it that we might race through a novel when in fact we have to slog through um, an academic piece of work or a piece of uh, a piece of um, um, a philosophy? So uh, so these are all fun things to think about. In addition to the you know the worldview represented by my by my uh, by my book, but I'm very happy that uh, I'm beginning to become confident that uh, as far as the storytelling is going goes, I have surpassed both Ayn Rand and B.F. Skinner. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe that was a low um, maybe that was a low bar, but I'm I'm glad to have hopped over it. <laughs> I, th- I think you might have leapt over it. But Dave, I remember in 2012, you wrote an article where you compared Ayn Rand with religious texts and you found that something striking that they had in common was that both the language about morality in both was simplified to the point where there are only two choices, to head towards glory or and away from ruin or to head towards ruin and away from glory and there was no sense of trade-offs. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mentioned that also briefly in the epilogue of, uh, of Atlas Hugged. The epilogue is titled The Science Behind Atlas Hugged, which <laughs> connects some of these dots. But of the numerous themes of the novel, and also, of course, what I study in um, as a scientist, are, of course, the nature of religion versus science, uh, the whole concept of a meaning system, uh, the difference between a theory and a meaning system is that a theory only tells you what is, but a meaning system informs what you do. So those are very different um, objectives. Uh, whether a meaning system can be secular in addition to religious, uh, the importance of truth-telling, all of these, um, all of these things. But um, 
insofar as a meaning system informs what you do, basically, if you get captured by a meaning system, then you wake up every morning brimming with purpose, and you know the righteous path, you know that you should do this, and you shouldn't do that. And and some of the simpler ways to to accomplish that is to actually create a stylized universe, as I, as I put it, that's actually linear that way. So in the stylized universe, this is not true of the real world, and the real world is just full of messy trade-offs. And so if you imagine some kind of two-by-two two quadrant in which every way you behave might be either good or bad for you and good or bad for others, so there's your two-by-two two quadrant, in the real world, all quadrants are full. I mean, if when I behave towards you, it might be good for both of us, bad for both of us, good for me, bad for you, good for you, bad for me. Those are all four quadrants. Welcome to the real world. In a stylized universe, um, often only two quadrants are represented. The universe is portrayed as if everything that you might do is going to be either good for me and you or bad for me and you, in which case... What you've done is you've eliminated the need for any decision-making whatsoever. Because within that world, the path to glory has been laid out for you. And the signature of a meaning system like that is perfectly easy to measure and and detect. You simply have to read or to basically listen or read to what's being said and just, and just put things in those four quadrants and you see only two quadrants become filled. And uh, so there is a sure signature of a of a adaptive fiction, basically. It might work well as a meaning system, uh, but it does not correspond to the real world. And you can tell, because if it did, all four quadrants would be filled. So um, it turns out that when you, when you uh, go through that for a religious worldview, then you find that. You find that linear model. But so also with Ayn Rand. And so there's your point. The point is, is that these stylized universes, which are um, um, hugely depart from from uh, factual reality, might be either religious, in other words, invoke supernatural agents, or secular, not invoke supernatural agents. But depart from factual reality in many, many other ways. And one reason why I, I'm a kind of an outlier as an atheist is that I make that point strongly, uh, and so I'm not anti-religious. Um, I'm actually very respectful of religion. And in my book, Atlas Hugged, um, the Christian community gets a very sympathetic treatment, along with the main female protagonist, Eve, Eve Eden. <laughs> Um, and um, um, and then um, and then an atheist worldview, and Ayn Rand was the new atheist of her day. That was decades before Richard Dawkins and and uh, Sam Harris and Dan Dennett and Christopher uh, um, uh, Hitchens. Uh, she might be an atheist, but uh, she was uh, she was um, departing from factual reality in her own in her own uh, way. And so the whole quest of Atlas Hugged is to find a way of telling right from wrong without peering through a tissue of lies. And the two main protagonists, John Galt III, the grandson of the protagonist of, uh, of Atlas Shrugged, and his 
um, um, lover, uh, Eve Eden, are each trying to to find a way to tell right from wrong without peering through a tissue of lies. Her tissue of lies was Christianity. His tissue of lies was objectivism. And what they're searching for is some way that science can actually inform how we should behave in order to create a better world. And that's the holy grail of the of the uh, novel. And in the novel, they succeed. Rand's epistemology relied solely on empiricism. Do you think the appeal of empiricism for Rand was that it wasn't inherently individual exploit? So you could be like Rodin's The Thinker, sort of sitting there reasoning from premises, whereas real science is a more collaborative enterprise? Yes, totally. Yeah, I just say amen to, to that. Um, Sorry, yeah, it wasn't really a question, was it? <laughs> it's more of a statement. No, but I'll elaborate on it. And again, it's... Um, it's uh, reflected in the in the uh, in the book that, uh, as the, as it's put in the book, it takes a, it takes a village to be a truth seeker. Uh, we can't do it as um, as individuals. Back to complexity, the idea that people can just sit around and and logically reason their way through things, there's this real hubris in in that. The world is way too complex for that. The whole apparatus of science struggles. To apprehend reality. I know that you recently had Joe Henrik on your show, and he's a great example. And everything that he does with weird people, um, or weird uh, cultures, white, educated, industrial, rich, democratic, and how trapped they are in their own bubble, uh, and can't even remotely understand other cultures. And so, and of course, ninety-nine percent of science is done in weird societies. And because science is a process of managed evolution, a certain kind of managed cultural evolution with certain objectives, um, of course, cultural evolution requires variation. And if every scientist is from a given culture, then the variation is not going to extend beyond their cultural bubble, is it? They will be collectively unable to see things which actually exist because their culture um, um, with its own adaptive fictions, just cannot cannot comprehend it. So that's how hard it is to apprehend factual reality. There is a world out there apart from our own existence. You couldn't you couldn't get going with the theory of evolution without assuming that organisms exist in environments that exist apart from their existence and would shape their their properties. So there is a world that exists out there. We can't apprehend that that world with enough hard work, but it's real hard. And it's a very twisting path. And so the idea that you can just sit around and go down like and reason your way uh, through things, that reasoning process is an important part of it. And that's important to acknowledge that it is. The idea that that uh, uh, the um, the third way um, that, that people always have, there's always been an intentional component to human cultural evolution. It's never been entirely blind. People just didn't do stuff at random and then the good things got selected. People were always striving, thinking, attempting to 
change things. And then, of course, often uh, they didn't really know. I mean, there were unforeseen. What what ended up happening basically uh, acquired huge blind components. So that means that there's a very large blind component to human cultural evolution. But there's also a very large cultural component. And a book I'm reading right now uh, called The Rise and Fall of Classical Greece by a, a classic scholar named and political scientist named Josiah Ober at, at Stanford University basically covers this for the whole Greek period. And of course, Greece is this cradle of culture and Western culture and and democracy. What exactly happened in Greece that caused this amazing efflorescence, which remains with us to this day. And danged if his account doesn't have multi-level selection written all over it, based in part on his Stanford colleague, Deborah Gordon, who's an ant biologist. And so evidently he's hung out with Deborah long enough to know, or long enough to, to think that these Greek city-states, polis, plural poli, um, we're like so many ant colonies competing against each other. Amazing. And the degree to which they were actively formulating their constitutions, their rules of governance, the whole concept of federalism, nested units. Um, the, the word deem comes from, from the Greek for the smallest unit, decision-making unit. Um, they invented whole tribes that never existed before just to organize things at intermediate um, uh, scales. They were just trying stuff out like crazy and explicitly trying stuff out in order so that they could actually get themselves to cooperate more than they were um, uh, before. So a huge intentional component that also led to a huge blind component and kind of comprehending both of those things as part of human cultural evolution, holding them both together um, is a difficult thing to do. I, I mean, I mean, you can get used to it, but but it's sort of challenging to think that, that they're both um, very important to keep in mind when we think about human cultural evolution. We'll come back to cultural evolution later. Um, Dave, you mentioned your protagonist, John Galt III, who is the grandson of Rand's protagonist. And chapter one to your book begins in the voice of John Galt III. He says, Call me anything but John Galt. That is my name, but it is also the name of my father and grandfather. I am not like them, and the world they created is not the one I desire. The three after my name does not sufficiently set me apart. So what sets John Galt III apart? Well, he is um, he he rebels against the evil empire of his father, grandfather, and grandmother. I need to tell you a little bit more about the plot because I had to begin with Atlas Shrugged, but of course I had to take great liberties with it along the way. So um, in my novel, John Galt One is a little bit the way he was in the way in in. Um, Ayn Rand's model. He's a brilliant engineer. He claims to be able to harness static electricity to create a limited source of clean energy. Um, he um, he goes um, becomes an outlaw. He tries to start a an, a, a strike of doers um, going on strike. That's the metaphor of Atlas Shrugged, uh, the doers of the world shrugging the world 
from uh, his uh, uh, shoulders. He ends up founding a utopian society out west, protected by his force fields, powered by his static electricity um, engine. And so, um, and so uh, in my novel, um, John Galt one is a little bit like that, except everything he does is a failure. The um, the um, static electricity engine is a folly. Uh, the utopian community is a folly. And then I import Ayn Rand into my novel in the form of Ayn Rand, who becomes John Galt One's lover, and um, and um, uh, their son John Galt Two becomes a social media giant. Think Rush Limbaugh, and or think a little bit Donald Trump, but mostly Rush Limbaugh who kind of popularizes um, uh, the highbrow philosophy of his mother and, and, um, and father, and, uh, and then uh, basically um, ushers in the whole sort of a world of extreme in- inequality and, and so on and, and so forth, very, what's very much within us today. And so Arjun, John Galt III, rebels against all of that. And so... And so um, uh, the evil empire is basically the evil empire of neoliberalism. And, um, and John Galt III uh, rebels against that. So there's you know, quite a bit of Star Wars in there, the virtuous son rebelling against the evil father and so on and so forth. And I actually type in, I, I, I uh, tap into quite a few of the familiar uh, modern myths like uh, Lord of the Rings and Star Wars and so on and so forth, but only in a kind of a gentle way um, and uh, in a way that is, um, I think, um, um, not so black and white. And I think a really good novel, uh, you have sympathy for all the characters. And so uh, I don't have, I mean, John Galt too, the Rush Limbaugh character, actually, you end up sympathizing with, with him. You end up sympathizing with them all, actually even Ayn Rand, and that's the mark of a really good fiction, is that you see all perspectives, basically. It's not just good people and evil people, that's boring. So, no, this is much more uh, interesting. Um, and there's one segment of the book where uh, John's writing to uh, Eve, and he says, this is what I've learned in my short life. Uh, the evil of the world is not caused by evil people. My father is not evil. My father is a good man under the spell of a bad story. And so it's the stories that we tell each other that we have to filter and winnow and come up with the right one. And when we do, then most people will be good. That's basically uh, it in a nutshell. What do most people not understand about the process of writing fiction? Well, I'm no expert, and that's one... Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm maybe no more than most, having observed my father... Uh, closely, and and we had a bunch of fiction, um, and uh, and then tried it for myself. But uh, what I noticed was how pleasurable it was, and how engrossing it was, even more than the nonfiction writing I've done. And and my nonfiction writing is is typically praised for its storytelling qualities. But the degrees of freedom that you have, creating a fictional world and the degree to which you moralize it, here again I'm agreeing with Ayn Rand, so that uh, as you begin to furnish the world, in the first place that's not a deterministic process, it's highly 
evolutionary. I mean, things occur to you that did not just, they come out of nowhere and then you fit them in or not, depending upon whether they work. And in that fashion, you build up a a world that was, um, I mean, you selected it in a sense. It's an evolutionary um, um, process. But uh, time and again, something would bubble up from my consciousness and some new plot development. And I'd think to myself, of course, that's how it must be. And then it would go on like, uh, it would go on like, um, uh, like that. And it's in that sense that I think that we are, um, that storytelling is deeply, deeply embedded in our natures. And that means story creation in addition to story listening and, and so on. So I tapped into something that was just deeply, deeply pleasurable. Um, and for that reason, I, um, I, you know, I recommend it to, to others as something which is pleasurable in its own right. And of course, you hope it finds an audience too. But uh, I do think it's a form of exploration, like journal writing. I mean, there's lots of evidence showing that writing a journal and just reflecting upon your own experience um, is terribly, is, is very therapeutic, healthful, um, restorative. And so I think poetry, songwriting, fiction, these are all things that um, are in that category. In short, all of the arts. And I mean, there's a whole, as you know, it's still fairly small, but there's a whole community of people thinking about all of the arts from a evolutionary perspective. I mentioned Brian Boyd for literature. There's also Ellen DeSanayake, who's, who's a pioneer. Uh, she wrote a book called What is Art For? as to, you know, why is it that the arts, which seemingly are not utilitarian, then how, why would they evolve? And the answer is, is that they're immensely utilitarian after all, in terms of helping us construct and color our, our cultures. So once you begin to take cultural evolution very, very seriously, then all the arts begin to make sense in terms of um, part of what it means to be inhabiting a, a cultural world, uh, which is embedded in the, in the real world. Having studied Rand and her works, is there anything about her or her writing that people underrate? Um... I'm pausing because I'm not a particular fan of her writing, but I have colleagues who were, in the first place, heavily influenced by her. And in the second place, uh, do admire her as a writer and thinker. And so um, I, and I, I should also say that I'm no great Ayn Rand scholar. I didn't feel I needed to be. Um, I'm, I mean, I've read plenty of her. I've written academic articles on her, so I suppose you could say that I'm a scholar. But by no means have I read everything she's she's um, uh, written. Not even um, not even um, uh, close. So she was disparaged by most philosophers, and I think for good reasons because there's a distinction for good reasons that actually reflect well upon her, <laughs> which might sound. Curious, but uh, but uh, I mean, most 
academic philosophies are attempting to be sort of system building. Uh, they're definitely attend, attempting to be rigorous in terms of some standards of logic and so on and so forth. And even though um, Ayn Rand pretended that that was true for objectivism and the very name objectivism, as I put it in Atlas Hogg, was the biggest deception of all, um, that's not really what she was about. And so judged by that standard, she deserves not to be taken seriously by by philosophers. But judged by the standard of of um, of creating a worldview, and for that worldview to be very motivating to people, well, she succeeded very well, didn't she? So as long as you kind of classify it as a secular religion, as opposed to some kind of systematic philosophy, then um, then you can see its strength. And um, and uh, for those who get uh, captured by it, then uh, then uh, I think that uh, they admire some aspects of the writing. But I have to tell you, I'm not among them. So uh, and also, there's a kind of a a danger that by by writing a sequel to Atlas Shrugged, then my book will only be compared with Ayn Rand. When uh, when in fact I'm up for something, I'm after something uh, larger uh, than that. Um, so I'm attempting to communicate the evolutionary worldview. Maybe I could have done that in a different way without ever mentioning Ayn Rand. But um, but uh, the book actually uh, conveys, and I think I'd, I'd like to think that Atlas Hugged the novel does pass muster uh, scientifically. Um, I've only recently encountered the the phrase hard science fiction. So science fiction in which the science is so authentic that actually what takes place in the fiction could actually conceivably take place in the real um, in the real world. And so uh, having just learned about that category, I'm proud to have contributed uh, uh, to it that, um, that what does take place in the novel, which is very rapid, transformative, positive cultural change, uh, actually it can happen. Something like this could happen. And the book is actually carefully, pretty carefully thought out in terms of the elements of that, in terms of the uh, um, uh, the track and 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 so on and so forth. I think that that there might be something worth keeping in Atlas Shrugged, and that is the importance of high agency, and maybe that's something that that people undervalue or overlook the importance of being a, a highly agentic individual. And I think it's noteworthy that lots of Silicon Valley entrepreneurs have cited Rand as being one of their chief inspirations or influences from you know Elon Musk to Peter Thiel to potentially even Steve Jobs, um, if we believe Wozniak's account of his intellectual influences. Um, is that something you agree with? I would, and I would say that, um, so basically inspire people to be highly agentic. And then, yeah, that's a good thing. So uh, so uh, let's call that a keeper. Now, what do they do on the basis of that? And it's there that uh, I think you get to the primary failing of, of um, Atlas, uh, uh, shrugged is that it's like individual only, individualism only. And what's needed is for 
highly agentic individuals to actually subordinate themselves to something larger than themselves. That's another part of the human experience. What we associate with religion and words such as worship, sacred, even God, but let's take the word sacred, uh, which is used all the time in secular contexts in addition to religious contexts. When you call something sacred, you place it above yourself. It dominates you. You agree by your attitude to work on its behalf. And it's at that point that agency, agentic individuals, can actually work together for some kind of common good. If there's nothing is sacred, if everything is profane, then agentic individuals, basically they work for their own good, and then we're back to laissez-faire, aren't we? So uh, in order for multi-level selection to take place, or in order for high-level selection to take place, for individuals to work, that's agentic, for something more than their own uh, welfare, then they must, they must place themselves below something else. And in today's world, that has to be the entire earth. And so, and so this leads inexorably in the novel and in real life to a whole earth ethic. If you're not placing yourself underneath the whole earth as the higher good, then you will be creating problems somewhere. So we need agency because agency is required for, um, for cultural evolution. Um, and, uh, and yet that agency must be subordinated to the global uh, higher good. In the novel, um, the difference between what John Galt III calls false objectivism, the sanctity of the individual, is replaced by the true objectivism, which is the sanctity of the earth as an individual. In other words, the earth is a superorganism. So three words make the difference. Three additional words make the difference. But agency is required at all points. And I think I've made that point myself when I said that human cultural evolution has always had a intentional component. People have always been trying to do something, basically. But what they've been trying to do often enough is to do such things as create a constitution or rules of governance or punish other people for not cooperating or forming norms or so on and so forth. So it's the individualism plus the community and that community now needing to be a multi-layered or a multi-level community that which prevents just agentic individuals from causing harm. What are Brian Boyd's best qualities as a proofreader? As a proofreader? Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean? Or as a reader of as a reader of your fiction? I assume he gave some comments and feedback. Oh, he actually did proofread. Just a kind of an amusing anecdote. I think anyone who publishes a book might be familiar with this. Of course, I've read the book a million times, so I was a proofreader. Then I got a professional proofreader who was really good. He caught a million things that I didn't catch. But do you know, dang, there were things that he didn't catch either. And Brian caught a bunch, and and then readers will write in about you know stuff that uh, that's um, just you know just plain um, errors. And so it, it gives me respect for genetic editing ability, the ability of our genes to proofread <laughs> during during replication and to keep those mutation rates down to such a low 
a low um, um, uh, level. But um, but um, Brian, um, trying to think of what um, my podcast with Brian. I'm drawing a blank at the moment, just not recollecting uh, much of what we uh, much of what we. Uh, um, uh, uh, talked about, although he did say that I mixed genres that, uh, in a way that sort of um, surprised him, that it's, uh, on the one hand, it's a utopian novel, it's also a hero's journey, it's a love story, um, so on and so forth. So, um, and also that I managed to be, uh, that it was, um, that it was fast paced, that it was, um, um, that it had variety and all of these good qualities in a story that um, was, of course, lovely to uh, lovely to uh, uh, to hear. Have you read Joseph Joseph Campbell's "The Hero Has a Thousand Faces"? Well, if I haven't, I've assimilated it by osmosis. So, uh, so uh, I'm um, uh, yes, but a long time ago. But uh, I know um, uh, maybe you can pick out what you're what you'd like from it. But uh, so go ahead. Oh, to be honest, I didn't have a specific question in mind, but um, it is a, a really good book, and I, I just wondered whether maybe you'd read that in preparation. But yeah, I think you've probably subsumed a lot of the ideas already by now. Well, I mean, he um, gets to, he gets Dave, let, he gets to the heart of storytelling, of course, and motifs yeah. and motifs that are repeated again and again. Um, and again, and Brian, because I do have a you go know, back a long way with him, and he's uh, um, he recommended a movie to me um, called The Fast Runner, which is a movie. It's it's actually based on an Inuit myth, but the whole movie was produced and directed and acted by Inuits, called The Fast Runner, and so the myth involves two virtuous brothers. Um, um, one of which is the fast runner, and an evil character who uh, basically disrupts the whole social order. He takes over, he's a big bully, he kills, kills his own father, he doesn't share food, he's just the bad guy. And the whole story revolves around, first of all, this rupture in the social order. He rapes people, I mean, he's as bad as a person can be. Uh, so first of all, there is a rupture in the social order, and then there's a repair. Um, and so, on the one hand, the movie is completely exotic, um, just by virtue of the culture being exotic, exotic to us. And there's an amazing scene in which he and his brother are, are uh, sleeping in a skin kind of tent, and the bad guy and his clan come to kill them, and they succeed in killing his brother, but the fast runner, and that's why he has his name, bolts out of the tent and runs away. He's stark naked, and it's springtime in the Arctic, and so it's relatively warm, and the ice has puddles and stuff like that. And there is a protracted scene in which the fast runner is stark naked, is running through the ice and over the fields and, 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 and stuff like that, being pursued by these this evil uh, uh, clan. And to someone for whom that's exotic, I mean, it's just like mesmerizing. And a point to make, I think, when we read, read fiction, for example, mystery novels, 
often part of their appeal is the, the, their particular setting, which might be 19th century England or Australia or any place. But the charm of the novel and much of the interest in reading it is just to soak up details of the culture, which, uh, which were, uh, are exotic to the, um, to the reader. And I actually try to do that in my book for academic culture. So, I mean, you know, John Galtry goes to college and he goes, he, there's a, you know, a biological station and stuff like that. So I try to provide that kind of uh, details for, for, um, um, for academic um, uh, culture. But back to the fast runner, there what you have are these timeless stories because the purpose of stories and this would be back to Brian as a as someone who approaches literature from an evolutionary perspective, is once again to to instruct. Do this, don't do that, this is the danger, so on and so on and so forth. And so it's not surprising that there's these universal um, uh, themes which get represented again and again, are timeless. And that's why Star Wars could be both, you know, thoroughly mundane. Um, in terms of its its use of those motifs, and at the same time new, in part because of its exotic setting space, um, um, and so on and so forth. I want to talk about multi-level selection, just while I've got you, Dave. Sure. And then ask you a couple of questions that I've been thinking about over the last couple of months. Maybe the best way to start would be to introduce people to the idea to the extent that there are many in the audience who are not familiar with it. And if people want like the long intellectual history, they can listen to the first podcast episode we recorded together. But but let's give them like a brief overview. I'm not sure how you'd like to start. Maybe we, we could start with biological group selection. Well, in some ways, we have been talking about multi-level selection in the sense that when individuals just try to pursue their own interests, then um, that can be uh, disruptive. And so in the most famous meme that I ever coined, selfishness beats altruism within groups, altruistic groups beat selfish groups, everything else is commentary. What that points out, which I think everyone can relate to on the basis of their experience, is that um, if you imagine the virtuous individual what does it even mean to be moral and virtuous? It means that basically you're behaving for the benefit of others or one's group as a whole. Uh, those behaviors are inherently vulnerable to the behaviors that we call uh, self-serving. And so uh, this was a problem for Darwin because obviously evolution promotes behaviors that cause individuals to survive and reproduce better than other behaviors. and it would seem that that would give selfishness the advantage, not, not altruism. And so Darwin realized that he actually could not explain all of the behaviors associated with virtue because of their vulnerability towards the behaviors associated with, with um, 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 evil and wrongness and, and so on. And the solution that he came up with is that uh, despite that, Groups of individuals who behave virtuously would be robustly outcompete groups of individuals who could not cohere. So there was a process of selection operating not just between individuals within a given social group, but also between social groups. And there was the force 
that could explain the evolution of goodness. So there you have it in a nutshell. And, um, and uh, multi-level selection merely expands that range downward so we can think about the interactions of genes within multicellular organisms. Upwards, we can think about ecosystems and groups of groups. But uh, really, multi-level selection is so simple that I think I, I, think I just succeeded in, in explaining it. Great. So I'd like to hear what you make of a particular critique of biological group selection. And the critique is that the men of, you know, it's a, it's a historical fact that the men of the conquering tribe would take the women of the vanquished tribe as mates, such that the genes of the vanquished tribe would then spread through the population of the conquering tribe. And there's lots of examples of this, but just to give a couple from literature... Um, to make this clear to, to listeners, in the Iliad, uh, the Greeks are laying siege to Troy and they periodically go out and sack its vassal states. And when they sack a city, they do two things. Firstly, they kill all of the men and then secondly, they enslave the women and the children. Um, a second example, in Shakespeare's account, Henry V warns a French village to surrender or else their, quote, pure maidens will fall into the hand of hot and forcing violation, end quote. <laughs> so what do you make of, of this argument, and does it significantly undermine biological group selection? No, it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't nearly, but the reason that it seems to is based on all sorts of unstated assumptions about the relationship between genetic variation and phenotypic variation. So this will get into the weeds a little bit, but actually it's worth doing. So I'm very happy to, very happy to, um, to do it. So all of the first models, and there seems to be a cycle. Um, maybe it's even inevitable that first you start out with a, like a rich appreciation of complexity. Um, the tapestry of nature and all that. Uh, but then when you begin to study it formally, then you have to use mathematical models. Uh, all kinds of simplifying assumptions are required to do that. And so there's a kind of a de facto denial of complexity uh, during the first model building stages. And then some insights come from that. But then those models uh, reveal their limitations. And then at the end of the day, you end up with a appreciation of complexity, which is on much more solid foundation than uh, its first form, which was just um, purely, purely uh, qualitative. And so against that background, when people started to model the evolution of altruism, and it doesn't matter whether it was called kin selection or game theory or, or uh, group selection, uh, the simplifying assumption they made was that a given behavior, let's say altruism or selfishness, was caused by a single allele, an altruistic allele, and a selfish allele, a one-to-one -one correspondence between genes and behaviors. Okay, well, that makes sense. And if you do that, of course, then all sorts of things follow as to um, genetic variation within and among groups, genetic and phenotypic variation within and among groups. And so if you imagine you have a multi-group population and each group is colonized by a certain number of individuals, um, uh, then the amount of genetic variation among groups will depend on the 
number of individuals that colonize each group. That's just sampling error. And so if there's, um, if groups are colonized by many individuals, and especially if there's a lot of gene flow between groups, there's your raiding and your raping and pillaging and so on, then most of the variation will exist within groups. Not much variation will exist between groups. And so group selection can't really be a very strong force under that, under that scenario. Uh, so that's the, the, the logic that leads people to believe that um, unless you have groups that are genetically isolated from each other, then group selection will not be a strong force. Well, now let's just do it. Let's, now let's just do an experiment. And experiments like this were done starting in the 1970s when Michael Wade, my colleague, working with flower beetles, he created flower, uh, groups of flower beetles. These are in little vials of flower. 16 beetles to a vial. Well, 16 is a pretty large number. Now, we shouldn't have too much genetic variation between vials when there's 16 beetles in each vial. That's a far cry from kin selection when every individual is a full uh, sibling. And he measured, um, he let them breed for 30 days and he measured uh, uh, group size, how many offspring were, were produced. Well, there was this enormous variation among groups, uh, despite the fact that the groups were colonized by so many individuals. And when he came to study exactly why that was, without going into details, what he found was complex interactions, genes coded for traits, but those traits interacted with each other to produce the trait of population size that was ultimately what got selected. And so if you know a little bit about complex systems, you know about sensitive dependence on initial conditions, that when you have replicate complex systems and they differ in a small degree, uh, those differences don't stay small, they grow larger because of the complex dynamics within each system. That's why the weather is so difficult to predict. And so uh, I, in 2000, with my grad student, Bill Swenson, we did this experiment. We created microbial microcosms. We did a number, but one was in aquatic environments. Basically, we had test tubes with, with sterilized medium into which we put one milliliter of unsterilized pond water. And if you know a little microbiology, you know that there's many, many millions of bacteria in one milliliter of pond water, of microbes, algae, bacteria of all sorts. And so the variation between test tubes was just like vanishingly small. We'll incubate them for a week and then measure something about them, like pH or something else you might care to measure. Danged if they didn't vary a lot. And so the whole nature of phenotypic variation in a complex system is different than one kind of one-to-one -one mapping between genes and the phenotype that you're selected for. Variation in nature is never in short supply. You can measure nature at any scale and you'll find that it varies because it's um, some version of the butterfly effect and sensitive dependence on initial conditions. Then there's the question of if you select on that variation, do you get a response? to selection. And so, and the answer is, the empirical answer is you do. That's what happened in our experiments. We did. So, so it's only based on these extreme simplifying assumptions that people, and people just think it's intuitively now, they don't even, they probably haven't even read the models 
it's just kind of the intuition that they've been taught is that group selection is uh, or the relative power of within and between group selection is directly proportional to the um, genetic and um, variation within and between groups. So you can make a statement uh, like that. But it's not true for cultural evolution and it's not true for biological evolution either. I hope I didn't go too much into the weeds there, but uh, but um, there's a you know a, a a brief account. That's great. Thanks, Dave. Let's talk about cultural evolution. What should people know about cultural multi-level selection and gene culture coevolution? Well, first, they should listen to some of your own podcasts, and I want to uh, I want to compliment you, Joe, on on becoming so literate and and excited about what's taking place in our field, so that you're interviewing the likes of me and Joe Henrik and many uh, many others to bring this to the attention of uh, a larger uh, uh, audience. And so, uh, thank you. Often, when I write about this, I say that. Almost everyone is either working towards or hoping for cultural change, positive cultural change in their own way. They frequently use words such as evolve and adapt in the vernacular, um, but they seldom think to consult um, the actual science of change, evolutionary science. There's a good reason for that, because the study of evolution was so confined to the study of genetic evolution until only a few decades ago. But now what's on offer is that we have a way to study and to influence cultural change based on a toolkit, conceptual toolkit, that has already proven itself in the biological sciences. So we already know that we have a transformative, nothing makes sense except in the light of theory, um, for the rest of life. And if that toolkit can be carried over to study human cultural change, then that's a pretty darn big deal. And so that's the incentive for studying cultural evolution, cultural multi-level uh, selection. It's what I try to convey in this view of life, fiction and fictional terms in Atlas Hugged. But there's a whole genre of books, more books than anybody can read, is coming out on this. I could list a dozen of them right here. I won't, but but uh, but uh, I mean, there are so many great books that are based on this paradigm that the real challenge is to expand the audience for them. Um, because even though it's a vibrant community, as I just said, with all those books, it's still just a tiny fraction of the worldwide academic community, not to speak of everyone trying to create positive change in the real world. So on the one hand, it's present tense, not future tense. People are already doing and thinking this way in the thousands, you might say. So that's the good news. But of course, there's between seven and eight billion people on Earth. And so in terms of this becoming uh, the common sense for everyone, the way everyone thinks, um, 
that's what's needed because, as you've already said, um, how you behave depends on how you think. There's this whole, and that's the other message of dual inheritance theory, is that there's a symbolic stream of inheritance that has been first evolved by genetic evolution and has been co-evolving with it ever since. But to think of our symbolic systems as like our genes, as like our genes, then one of the things that that tells you is if, if you want to change the phenotype, if you want to change how we behave at all scales, from individuals to the planet, we need to change the way we think. We need to change our symbolic systems. You cannot change the outside without changing the inside. And that's pretty profound. It's not as if we can just stay the way we are on the inside and then do something different. I mean, we have a limit. The way any person is on the inside endows them with a, a small repertoire of behaviors for them responding to the world. Everyone's phenotypically plastic that way. They're, but their symbolic systems gives them a, some if-then tree of things to do, if this, then that, whatever, in terms of how to behave. But if you want to behave substantially different on the outside, we must change the way we think on the inside. So there's a dialectic between our internal world and our external worlds that we need to manage. Unmanaged, it will take us where we don't want to go. So it must be managed in that humble way, not centralized planning, but in that humble experimental way is the sense in which we need to evolve our our um, our futures. So that's basically everything I do is predicated on that. And so it penetrates my uh, Atlas Hugged and Atlas Hugged itself co-evolved with my real world change efforts. So those are joined at the at the hip. Can I suggest two popularish books for people who want to get their heads around dual inheritance theory? And then you can add or subtract from my recommendations, Dave. So sure. one would be Not by Not by Genes Alone by Boyd and Richardson, and the other would be The Secret of Our Success by Joe Henrik. Yeah, sure. Um not by Genes Alone was published in 2006. Um, and uh, Secret of Our Success. And uh, Henrik was uh, a student of Richardson and Boyd. So there's an academic lineage there. Is uh, 2014 or 2015, as I, as I uh, recall. I think uh, Not by Genes Alone, that's a definitely an academic book. Uh, and so not every one of your readers is going to easily assimilate that book. I recommend it to them. Uh, but Joe's book is beautifully written in addition to being authoritative. And I think his new book is needed as much. So if there were only two books, it seems strange that I should, um, that I should, uh, they should be by the same author. But that is an indication of my esteem for, for Joe, um, Henrik. Then to add other books onto that, I would list um, Peter Turchin's Ultra Society, which talks about cultural multi-level selection, basically the last 10,000 years of history from a cultural evolutionary perspective. And then again, Peter has a book called Ages of Discord, which is an amazing analysis of American history from the same perspective. And if you want to understand America today, then Ages of Discord. Uh, Peter actually, and he's 
now widely credited for this. He predicted this mess 10 or 15 years ago, based on his knowledge of American uh, history. Um, this is our second age of discord. I mean, the, when we compare today with the, with the first Gilded Age, there's a lot to that. And when we compare yeah. what we need to do now with what was done for the New Deal, there is a lot to that. So, um, so and again, we could go on, but, uh, uh, but uh, yeah, that's, uh, those are great picks. So in the age of discord and in secular cycles, Peter, Peter Turchin, that is, finds that cycles of inequality and cooperation are inversely correlated. And that closely mirrors Bob Putnam's finding in his new book, The Upswing, which tracks how inequality is corrosive of social capital. Question for you, Dave, why do you think that's the case? And does a multi-level selection framework predict that? It does predict that, and it gives it a generality that is, I think, um, awe-inspiring when you think of it, that the same set of principles can account for everything from current events to uh, 10,000 years of human history to the genetic evolution of our species as a highly cooperative species to the genetic evolution of other highly cooperative species. So it even, not only does it transcend, or you should say explain cultural variation uh, within humans, but it also explains interspecies variation in non-human species. It's all the way back to the origin of life, for heaven's sakes. I mean, when you think when people talk about, when political scientists talk about democracy and stuff like that, they typically provide very shallow cultural explanations like, you know, Greek democracy or American democracy, the democratic movements in Europe and so on and so forth. When the true explanation is 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 basically that something like democratic governance is required for life. <laughs> Cooperation is inherently egalitarian. And so whenever you get, uh, and, and is inherently vulnerable, as we have already said. And so when within-group selection takes place, then it is inherently is corrosive of cooperative efforts. You don't cooperate with a bully. You don't cooperate with someone who is using. You, you resist that person. And sometimes you fail, and so you must, because you're forced to. But those groups... Uh, actually do have their days. So if you actually look at history, you find it's full of despotic regimes and empires which were predatory on other cultures. There's slavery. There's all these um, things which we recognize as highly immoral, although not by the people who practice them. So, um, but what you find again and again, it's in this uh, history of uh, classical Greece that I'm reading now, it's in books such as Why Nations Fail by Asimoglu and, and uh, Robinson, The Spirit Level, uh, Wilkinson and Pickett, um, books of, uh, recent books of Douglas Fukuyama, is that um, when societies are inclusive, then they tend to work well as societies. When they become despotic and authoritarian, they only work for the elites. And the elites cannot really bully 
people into cooperating with them. I mean, they can to a degree, but for the most part, those social groups end up succumbing in between group competition, which is warfare mostly, but also economics. Warfare and economic productivity are joined at the hip. You can't wage war with if you're not economically productive. So, um, so there's your higher level competition favoring internal egalitarianism. Of course, that's just that's just expanding the scale of conflict in addition to cooperation. And so we have to ask the question, is, is worldwide cooperation possible uh, without a process of between planet selection, which is science fiction? So, uh, and the answer to that question is yes, but only by a, a very mindful process of cultural evolution. We have to have worldwide cooperation as the target of selection, and then we have to orchestrate all lower level activities um, with that in mind. In other words, everyone, including nations, must regard the earth as sacred, um, and they must work towards it. And if they want to distinguish themselves as nations, then it's in setting exemplars and models. That's what the whole concept of reputation is, one of Joe Henry's contributions to all of this. Um, um, is to make the distinction between basically dominance and prestige. Um, two ways to to become high status in a group. One is to just to be powerful and take it, like a bully would, or an autocrat would. The other is to earn it by by um, by doing something that's so valuable to others that that they bestow their reputation upon you. And so, societies that are based on reputation. Often they're very hierarchical, but the criterion for becoming powerful is actually to be a responsible agent with respect to the larger entity. So that's how nations should be competing with each other and have in the past. So when you look at people that, um, for example, were advocates of the League of Nations or the United Nations and so on, that's how they saw themselves, that the way to be patriotic the way to be a great nation was to be a leader among nations in establishing a cooperative world order. That, that's, not, that's not even new, but it's something that we can understand better than we did before. And then we can say, that's how we make America great again, that way. So, and any nation can then, can then compete on that, that field. And then it becomes more like an organized sport There are some beacons of hope in the historical record which shine out as examples of the fact that inequality doesn't have to lead to dominance and that the elite can be noble and self-sacrificial. And, and the one to me that perhaps shines brightest is Franklin Delano Roosevelt. I've recently, I haven't finished it yet, but I've been reading the biography which is called, interestingly enough, A Traitor to His Class. Yeah, I've read that book too. It's a great book. Mm. How concerned are you for American society at the moment? Well, to first of all, dwell on that book um, a little bit. Things got so bad during the uh, first Gilded Age that uh, some of the elites 
And a lot of what Peter Turchin writes about is competition among elites. It's really fascinating. Elite overproduction, competition among the the elites. When there's yeah. too many when there are too many elites and they none of them want to give up their life cycle, they they start competing with each other. That means that if there's a constituency that will support them, then they'll become revolutionaries, even though they're elites. I yeah. mean the whole the whole business with Donald Trump, I mean it's just there for everyone to to um uh, to see, but when things get bad enough, then Dave, I'm... sorry, hmm? can can we just dwell on that for a moment? Because sure. I think it's a super interesting point. Sure. I think what most people think when they think of the relationship between inequality and social unrest is that you have the masses setting off some kind of like uprising where they overthrow the elite. But Peter's insight is the conflict actually arises within the elite itself because. You know, for example, there are only so many Senate seats or so many seats in the House of Congress, yet we have a multiple of, you know, more lawyers than we did in the past. And so the elite is fighting amongst itself for the same amount of spoils. They're able to enlist the masses to join their cause because obviously there is some like smoldering unrest among the masses. And that's actually the source or the genesis of conflicts. Yeah, and even when you um, look at the New Deal, as, as as good as it was for some people, it was terrible for others. I mean, there's some people that have been cut out of it all all the time, forever. I mean, none of this is truly egalitarian, never has been. Uh, we hope that it will be in the in the um, in the future. But even among the elites, I mean, something that's enough in the past so that young people might find it curious is. Um, prejudice against not only Jews, but against Catholics in America. And so basically, the, the, there was competition among the Protestant elites, the Jewish elites, and the Catholic elites. And so that kind of discrimination was basically economically based, Protestants as a cultural block, excluding um, other ethnic groups at that time, including including uh, including uh, Catholics, so. Yeah. P Peter uses, um, like, the number of lawyers as, like, a percentage of the general population, I think, as a pr proxy for elite overproduction. <laughs> I actually tried to find some data on this in the Australian context recently. I, I couldn't really find anything, but there's a study that Urbis did for the national... Um, they looked at the the number of solicitors practicing in Australia nationally, and that number increased by 33%, so a third, between 2011 and 2018, whereas I think the general population grew by about half that rate. So, Well, the know, amount, basically, college but, uh, education is, um, is part of this. It's lower down, but basically, yeah. uh, Peter will say that you know, trying to grant everyone a college education sounds good, but now you have everyone that wants to basically live like a college, they think a college-educated person should look like, and there's just not enough of that kind of job to go around. And so you have all these people that are sort of uh, are in despair because they're, they're not succeeding according to their expectations, and that, that becomes a kind of a breeding ground for one kind of conflict for, um, or, um, or another. Well, in any case, so um, so things can get so bad that some of the elites will say, uh, I mean, this whole ship's going down, folks. Uh, we really have to make decisions on behalf of the whole ship. Uh, 
uh, not just my class, my aristocratic class. And FDR was, uh, was among them. And so he was a traitor to his class because he was now making decisions on behalf of the whole nations. And thank heavens that he um, was somewhat successful at, uh, at, uh, at doing so. And that's, of course, and that's, of course, what's needed for today. And it's needed not only at the national scale, but at the worldwide uh, scale. This is the moment, I think, for people to decide that their primary social identity should be citizen of the earth, and that all their other identities don't go away, but need to be subordinated to being a citizen of the Earth. That's not at all new. It's what the Pope is calling for. It's what the Dalai Lama is calling for. Um, it's what environmentalists call for. It's what economists like Kate Rayworth um, uh, call for. It just only makes sense that um, that uh, all of us are first and foremost human beings sharing much more in common than their cultural differences. Although those cultural differences are going to be huge, as Joe Hendrick will tell us, um, and citizens of the earth, uh, we have to be stewards of the earth, all of that, that has to be the primary social identity. And then other things below that will fall into place or need to, all the way down to the local level. A point to make here when we talk in highfalutin terms about global welfare and so on, that doesn't nearly substitute for the need to exist in small, nurturing, cooperative, meaningful uh, groups. And that's another theme of uh, Robert Putnam, who you mentioned um, with his most recent book, his earlier book, Bowling Alone, mourning the decline of small groups of all, of all sorts. And so a big part of this, which we haven't talked about, is, um, is the need to create a cellular level of human society with the cells being um, small, functionally oriented groups. And that's a strong theme in Atlas Hugged, where village-sized societies are described as, a, as close to a utopia as we'll get, are small groups of people that are appropriately structured, uh, doing, meaningful, uh, doing meaningful things together. Yeah, I mean, without that, we can't really be happy and live satisfied and meaningful lives, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's there that the pandemic, I think, can have a silver lining if it results in the permanent establishment of electronic communication for long distance and person-to-person communications locally. Wouldn't that be great if we decided that we're not going to globetrot anymore, any more than we have to? Um, we're going to have our our conferences um, online. That's something that's worked out amazingly well, by the way. All of these national and international conferences that could not take place as physical conferences, people thought, oh my God, what'll happen? So they were taught, so they took place online. And do you know that they were really great and that the attendance was like three, four, ten times the attendance uh, all the meetings were recorded. You could visit them at any time. Clever ways for interactions were developed, the kind of side talk that conferences are so, are so good for. I never want to go back to 
And think of the climate footprint, the carbon footprint that was saved with all that travel that didn't take take place. Let's continue that. And then let's nourish ourselves with our with our face-to-face -face interactions locally. Locally, where we don't have to travel to to do that. So that would be a, a double benefit. And I think that that would be um, a great outcome, I think, of the of the uh, pandemic. Dave, one last evolutionary question. You can answer this as extensively or as briefly as you like. Did Ed Wilson make a mistake in trying to dismiss kin selection? <laughs> um, yes and no. Uh, there is this thing called equivalence, which is that all these theories of social evolution which sprung up uh, mostly as alternatives to group selection. So here's a bit of history that's not often told. Group selection came first. The theory of group selection came first, beginning with Darwin. Those other theories... In the Descent of Man. In the Descent of Man, and then there's a long history. I tell it with Elliot Sober in my book, Undo Others. There's the Fathers of Population Genetics. There's Sewell Wright, Ronald Fisher, J.B.S. Haldane, um, so on. And even G.C. Williams wrote an article on, on, uh, on group selection. And then that came under criticism. And then these other theories, kin selection, inclusive fitness theory, um, game theory, were all advanced in the 1960s for the most part um, as alternatives to group selection. And Ed Wilson, although he was as sympathetic to, as anyone could be, to group selection at the time, uh, did in that time sort of... Um, um, favor, kin selection, so on, and uh, reciprocity, so on, and, and uh, so forth. What we know now is that these other theories, actually, there's that the, the, the various theories of social evolution have a lot more in common than was known at first. In fact, they all require the same basic logic of multi-level selection. Social interactions in all cases take place in groups that are small compared to the totally evolving population. Cooperative behaviors are vulnerable to selfish behaviors within each and every one of those groups. Therefore, there has to be some differential contribution of those groups in order for um, cooperative and altruistic behaviors to evolve. That's true for all of them. Um, and so that's called equivalence, basically. Uh, the idea that these theories are are somehow intertranslatable. They might still be useful uh, for the perspective that they provide, so you might still continue to have more than one, uh, but you must recognize them as like speaking different languages and so on and so forth. So um, I think Ed was, uh, starting with me in our 2007 article, Rethinking the Theoretical Foundation of... Um, sociobiology, and then with his collaboration with um, Martin Nowak, and uh, and uh, uh, I'm not pronouncing her name right, Carnita, what's, a, what's the co-author of uh, Ed's paper with, uh, uh, with apologies, I'm not, uh, I uh, basically reasserted this logic of multi-level 
selection as the appropriate theoretical foundation for sociobiology. But on top of that, he never was comfortable, and to this day is not comfortable, with the idea of equivalence. And so he wants to say that there's something about kin selection that's just plain wrong and misguided. Um, and um, and that's a little bit um, unfortunate. And a bit like Ayn Rand, you have to go back um, and realize that Ed, now in his 90s, I believe, in his late 80s or 90s, um, you know, was present through the whole period. And if you go back to the very beginning, for example, kin selection, what was new about it was that it explained uh, altruism towards collateral relatives. The idea that parents would benefit their offspring, well, that was just natural selection. It was benefiting siblings or other relatives, that's part, the part that was new, but as and also, it was about genealogical relatedness. Kin selection, at first, was about identity by descent. But then it became generalized, and that coefficient of relatedness, for example, became any correlation between the phenotype of the actor and the phenotype of the uh, recipient for any reason. It became a correlation coefficient, but not to add... <laughs> Ed was saying there's something more than genealogical relatedness. And so it was at this point that I think there's a lot of confusion. Uh, and it remains very, very confusing all the way at the top. It's been a source of frustration for me. It's not the case that there's like some uneducated people and then the experts are all on the same page. It's not like that at all. And perhaps a final thought, although never say never in a conversation like this, um, but um, uh, something that I've come to appreciate is that, and it brings us back to individualism, which began this conversation, um, that when we think of it as an intellectual tradition that has long roots, but really became dominant in the middle of the 20th century um, and dominated most economics, the social sciences, everyday life, and my field of evolutionary biology, it begins to make sense of this zeal with which group selection was rejected in favor of individualistic explanations. The answer to that, I think, is not just what was taking place within evolutionary theory. It was what was taking place much more broadly across the board. And so evolution's individualistic swing, explaining everything in terms of individual self-interest and their selfish genes was really part of this broader tradition of individualism. And just as we're, I think, exiting from individualism across the board, and should be, then that explains, I think, why multi-level selection is now being revived. Um, again, that's something that has to be seen more, more um, um, systemically. So uh, I, I, it gives me more insight into why group selection was rejected with the, with the zeal that it was. The final sentence of G.C. Williams' um, book, Adaptation and Natural Selection, published in 1966, was, I believe it is the light and the way. So <laughs> something's going on there. 
yeah, that's a red flag. Yeah, uh, Michael, Dave, Michael, I have three, Mike, three. F- Michael Geslin during What's the same that? period said, "Scratch an altruist and watch a hypocrite bleed." So <laughs> there was. Um, Richard Alexander caused the selfish gene movement to be the greatest intellectual revolution of the 20th century. So there was this feeling of triumphalism um, that was uh, mirrored in in um, economics and, and the like. So uh, seeing all this in a very broad context, I think, is important for all of us. Yes. Dave, I have three final questions because I want to be respectful of your time. But um, you're you're well known as the the champion who resurrected group selection back in the 1970s. Did you have a sense of yourself as an outsider? And what's it like championing an unpopular idea for so long? Well, in the first place, I wasn't alone. It wasn't as if I was a lone ranger. It was a, a heretical position, that's for sure. For me, it was an opportunity. I was ambitious. I thought I could make my name um, and did. So uh, so I rushed towards it in that sense um, while other people were running um, away from it. And for the most part, I had a pretty good time in the process. So I think that uh, science should be a process of constructive disagreement. And for the most part, um, it was. I got good jobs, I got grants, I got publications. Um, I mean, I got rejections also, but uh, it wasn't as if I was like, you know, being persecuted or anything like like that. So that might be my, my personality, but for the most part, it was, you know, the, um, it was the good fight. And uh, and uh, it was a positive experience. Glad to hear it. So it wasn't wasn't particularly traumatic then. No, <laughs> that's good. What has twenty twenty been like for David Sloan Wilson? And has all of the have all of the events of this tumultuous year done anything to either change or affirm your priors? Well, um, I think personally, I've weathered 2020 um, embarrassingly well. Um, I used to do a lot of globetrotting, and it was like, you know, over 30 trips a year. And when I didn't do that, I just stayed at home. I realized how lovely that was, so and how much I could do. And also, I'm very lucky that um, almost all of my major projects have been have um, um, been able to continue. Almost none of my projects were actually terminated by the um, by the pandemic, because so much can be done on uh, online. So uh, on all of those ways, I'm, I'm blessed, I'm getting very tired of as well as everyone else. But uh, and of course, the, uh, it's surging everywhere, so I could get it at any time. And uh, you know, here in upstate New York, it's been a pretty low incidence until recently, but now, you know, my neighbors have it. Um, um, and so I'm at as much risk as anyone um, 
as anyone else. There's much to reflect upon, and I think that um, the main thing is that um, what the pandemic has done is it's revealed all the other inequities and problems that existed beforehand. And so I hope that, uh, as they say, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste, that this is a kind of a wake-up call, and that um, as we as we work together at a worldwide scale to solve one thing, we can work at to solve um, all of things, all of these things. And so, in a sense, because everyone is so desperate for change, that that is an opportunity uh, for better change methods, which is the fundamental message that we're, uh, what I'm working towards, both in, in, in all my work, fiction and plus, plus um, uh, nonfiction. So in the book, there's actually worldwide transformational change that takes place in 100 days, and that's not going to happen. But I do have a sense of catalysis. Um, the concept of chemical t- catalysis is that there can be a substance that when you add it to a chemical reaction, it increases the rate of that reaction by orders of magnitude, that something like that can take place for cultural evolution uh, so that uh, positive change can take place in a matter of years, not decades, at a large scale in addition to a small scale. All of that, for me, is is in the realm of the possible, and uh, and all of the things taking place around us creates a receptivity for that, as well it should, as well it should. So I think that the message, not just the method, but the practice, um, uh, has a better chance of being, of being, uh, of being um, uh, implemented, and so in all those ways, I'm, I remain motivated, highly motivated, and uh, despite the, the uh, everything that's terrible about the pandemic. So, Dave, I might be a bit biased here, but I think I have the best audience in Australia. Although we do have a lot of listeners in the United States, in the United Kingdom, and, and around the world as well. They're an audience of doers, they're optimistic, they're altruistic. At the dawn of 2021, what, what final piece of advice would you give them? Well, it's going to sound self serving. Um, but I do think that there are, an, um, um, actually not, because uh, what I'm doing through ProSocial World, which is a new organization that spun off from my previous organization, Evolution Institute, is in partnership with many, many other positive change um, movements. We talk about a collaborative landscape, not a competitive Landscape and as part of the third way series that we talked about earlier, is that best practices have been converged upon again and again and again. So actually, there's many successful change efforts. Their problem is is that they're all encapsulated within some island of an archipelago of knowledge and and um, and practice. And so and so, what's new, what's genuinely new, is to have some kind of general formulation that can be something that can be useful for any group, any size, any place, any context, a set of tools that can be used for them not only to function better 
um, internally, but also to hook up with other groups to build that worldwide superorganism. And however they want to enter that, uh, whatever their entry point is to it, then that's what I hope that they will do, that they will uh, do it, basically go into action mode in a way which is not encapsulated, but which is part of this general framework. And the two entry points that I would suggest would be, I'll suggest three. Um, the one that's not my own is Kate Layworth's Donut Economics, because she has a real vision of um, what um, uh, economics should be um, and, um, and a multi-level way of getting there. So with donut economics, what you'll see is that there's uh, the outer edge of the donut is the planetary boundaries. The inner edge is the social equity issues. We have to remain within the donut. And then, of course, all of that is global, but it must also be local. And she's in the process now of implementing that. Amsterdam is a donut city. <laughs> you could be the donut neighborhood, so on and so forth. So I love that. And I work with Kate. Um, that's complementary with ProSocial. So I'm very happy to to encourage your listeners to get involved in, in that. And then my own two entry points our pro-social world, type in pro-social world, and you'll get there. And that provides opportunities to um, to um, uh, get involved with any group that you're currently working with, any group that's doing good work, then we can help you work better and we can connect you to other groups. So please contact us at pro-social world. You could get trained to be a facilitator. So you could work with groups. Uh, over 500 have been trained in 34 countries. Australia is a hotspot, thanks to my colleagues such as uh, Paul Atkins and Robert Stiles. Awesome people. So actually, I would love for there to be a strong branch of pro-social in Australia, and that could happen like that. Paul knows uh, other organizations that are like-minded, so um, that would be a great um, outcome. And then finally, um, maybe if you uh, your easiest entry point is through... Uh, through a novel and not through a uh, nonfiction. And I think that if you do read Atlas Hug, then it will be, hopefully it will be, um, uh, the storytelling will be will be good. And then uh, it's written to, to cross over. The very last um, uh, sentence, let me read it, and this will be probably the end of our interview in the, um, in the, um, Epilogue uh, is, uh, I hope that my excursion into the world of fiction has given this sense of possibility to readers of Atlas Hugged. I now invite you to cross over to the world of nonfiction to make the vision of Atlas Hugged a reality. So uh, your entry point could be um, a story. Or if you want the nonfiction version, then this view of life. <laughs> links to pro social world and dave's new novel atlas hugged will be in the show notes david sloan wilson it is always a pleasure speaking with you happy new year and thanks for joining me okay great keep it up until the next time 
Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Thank you so much for being a listener of this show during 2020. If you're enjoying what we do, I would hugely appreciate a rating and a five-star review on iTunes. I know everybody asks, but it does help people find us and it does help us reach hard-to-reach guests. So if you leave a rating, we will be forever in your debt. The audio engineer for the Jolly Swagman podcast is Lawrence Moorfield. Our very thirsty video editor is Al Fetty. I'm Joe Walker. Until we speak again, thank you so much for listening. Ciao.